I wonder if um, you've ever been out for dinner at a restaurant or maybe at a friend's place and tried a bottle of wine and thought to yourself, oh, I really like that. I'll have to buy some of that for myself. Well, I've done that with Leanne on a number of occasions. And if I really remember, I take a photo of the bottle of wine and sometimes we've, we've jotted down the name and the brand. But the amount of occasions where I've actually then gone to uh, the bottle shop and bought that wine has been zero. Um, one of our uh, church members who was sitting right in front of me at our 9.30 service, John Fragley, um, introduced me earlier this um, yeah, actually late last year, I think it was, to an amazing app. And this app allows you to open up the app, take a photo of your bottle of wine, and then it immediately gives you a rating of that um, wine out of five stars. And in some circumstances, you can go and buy it straight away or it'll tell you where you can buy it. It also has a dangerous feature which gives you the average price of the bottle of wine. Now, I say dangerous because you could be at a restaurant and find out that the $50 bottle of wine that you are currently drinking actually costs the restaurant $15. It also allows you to scan the wine that your dinner guest brings over for you as a contribution to the meal or as a gift and it can inform your decision as to whether to drink the wine now, to put it in the wine rack and save it so that you can drink it all by yourself later, or whether you might just serve it to your guests and save the rest to put in your spaghetti bolognese. Now, I have never done that, but now with this app, I can. Today's sermon is all about wine. Why? Why not? Wine not. I thought it was the world's best ever dad joke, but perhaps not. <laughs> no. <laughs> a little bit over a week ago, I heard some really interesting research about wine. The researchers found that if you told somebody that the wine that they were drinking was expensive wine, even though it was secretly cheap wine, when at the end of the wine tasting experience they were asked to rate the wine, they rated it higher if they thought that they were drinking expensive wine. They rated it lower if they knew the truth, that it was actually a cheap bottle of wine. So, for example, if I got a bottle of um, wine from the bargain bin from the local bottle for $5 and then I served it to you saying it was a premium bottle of wine that normally costs $100, researchers showed that you would rate the wine more highly than if I was just honest and told you where I got it and how much I paid. And I had this uh, research in the back of my mind as I was reading through John chapter 15. And as I was reflecting on what it meant to be connected to the vine, connected to Jesus, I began to realise that being connected to Jesus 
is like being constantly told that you are worth more than the world says that you are worth. You are loved more than the world says you are lovable. And you are valued more highly than the world says that they value you as. And that you are a precious child of God. If thinking that the bottle of wine that we are drinking is worth more has the impact that it increases our enjoyment and value for it, I started to wonder what must being nurtured, matured, shaped and equipped in an environment where we are constantly being told that we are worth more than the world says that we're worth. We are loved, we are valued and we are precious. What, what would living in that type of environment do for our lives and the lives of others? Jesus has just said to his disciples, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and in fact, will do greater works than these, because I'm going to the Father. Jesus has a long history with wine, particularly in John's Gospel. The very first miracle in the Gospel of John is Jesus turning the water into wine. And it's not just the cheap $5 bottle type of wine that he turns it into. The stewards say that it was the best wine of the night. Jesus looks at us and not only says we are worth more than the world says we are worth, we are loved, we are valued, and we are precious. But he also says that through us, he will continue the work that he has begun. And through us, the best is yet to come. How much might be being connected to Jesus in this way transform us as a person? How much should we, those who believe in Jesus, who are supposed to be at least in somewhat connected in this way, be demonstrating that transformation? And if we're not, what are we missing? In the 12 uh, verses that Dawn read for us, there are two main actions. Jesus asks us to abide and bear fruit. Jesus talks about abiding 11 times and bearing fruit six times. And as much as I would love to have the time to dig into both words completely and phrases completely and themes completely, I'm only going to choose the main one, the abiding bit. Because what I hear Jesus say is if we get the abiding bit right, the bearing fruit will follow. Now, each week um, throughout Lent, we've, we've learned one new Greek word. Um, and so this, this week is a really easy one. It's only short. It's pronounced meno. And it's what is translated as abide. But to get the full understanding and magnitude of what this word means, we need to skip back a whole chapter 
to what is probably the most well-known part of John's Gospel. Verses 1 to 6, which end with Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But before he says this, he says these words, In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. The Greek word for dwelling places, or in some English translations we, we see the word mansions, is the Greek word monai, which comes from the Greek word meno. And it basically means it's a place where you abide, or it's an abode. In today's vernacular, we might say it's our dream house. Abide doesn't just mean hanging around with Jesus every now and again. It actually means to take up residence in, to move in, to pack up your belongings and to shove them into a removalist truck and to move to another location and then re-establish yourself. Not for a while, not for a season, but forever for eternity. And this is our invitation. Are we prepared to accept this invitation and go as far in as this might suggest? Because it's pretty much all in. Coming to church once a week, switching on a live stream from home, helping out or volunteering in some aspect of church life, isn't in and of itself abiding. It's actually not church either. It might be a small part of what those who abide do, but it really is only a very small part of it. And those sort of things, they they sort of reside better on the bearing fruit side of this passage. But again, it's only a very small part of what it means to bear fruit. There is a part in this passage today I think that we could easily skip over just because it's hard. And it doesn't seem to immediately fit with the words that I've just said, basically saying that Jesus is telling us how valuable and loved we are and we feel good about that. Verse 6 says, Whoever does not abide in me is thrown away like a branch and withers. Such branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Sometimes when I get to passages like this in the Bible, I read them really, really quickly. And so I get to the better bits, and so I don't dwell on them, and so it doesn't have to, 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 to weigh heavily. Um, but I, I learned early on in, in, in my How to Preach courses that when you read verses like this to a group of uh, people in a room, you really should try and explain and, and unpack the hard bits. But I've also heard preachers and interpreters suggest that this verse tells us that we are either all in or we're all out. And if we're not all in, then we're better off being all out. And I think that this is perhaps a misreading of this particular passage, but also a misunderstanding of what grace is. 
You see, because I know that I can't live up to being all in all of the time. I am at some point in the very, 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 very near future going to get it wrong. I will put myself before God and before others. And so I thank God for the grace of the vineyard who will lovingly prune those aspects of my life that are, have been, and will continue to need to be directed and corrected. You see, being told that you are worth more than the world says that you are worth, being told that you are loved and you are valued and you are precious over and over again is not the same as being coddled. Part of being loved that completely is receiving the direction and correction that we need. And we will always need this throughout our lives. Ironically, I think the older we get, the more aware that we need that direction and correction. Because, surprise, we are not the vine. We are not Jesus. If we are coddled, if we're never directed or corrected, we end up saying to the world, hey, look at me, aren't I awesome? Rather than, look at the vine, how awesome is Jesus? I do think that there are some exceptional circumstances in which a whole person or perhaps a group of people need to be removed from the vine. But I do think that that is the rare exception because what I see in grace is a desire from God to always bring wholeness through forgiveness as we journey through the struggles of life. And that is the norm. And I think also is the norm is that we all have to expect experiences where parts of our lives are snipped off and thrown into the fire. And so we shouldn't be too quick to load up this metaphoric fire with all the people that we disagree with. Because God may very well be just about to or already bearing fruit in their lives as well. And if we are loading them up onto the fire, are we actually bearing fruit? We are reminded that judgment is a big part of the character of God and of Jesus, but it's not to be part of our character. Another tricky part in this passage um, comes in verse 10, which says, if you keep my commandments you will abide in my love. Which somebody with an analytical mind like mine immediately goes to, okay, which commandments do I need to co commit to so I know that I get it right? What does Jesus mean here? I actually don't think he's talking about the Ten Commandments or the hundreds of laws that the religiosity in that culture had developed. I also don't think when Jesus is asked, what are the greatest commandments? And he gives the answer, 
The two greatest commandments are to love God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength and your neighbour as yourself. I'm not quite sure that he's even referring to that in this part. I think all we need to do is look at the next, at the end of this passage in the next verses. Because in verse 12, Jesus says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Easy, isn't it? Just one thing that we've got to do. Love one another as I've loved you. But hang on, how does Jesus love us? Jesus loves us like we are worth more than the world says we are. Jesus loves us like we're more lovable than anything else in our lives. We're valued and precious. Classically, this passage, if you're looking at your Bible, if you've got one open now, you'll see that it actually breaks for a paragraph breath at verse 11 and doesn't get to this last verse until the next section. But in the original manuscripts, there were no verse numbers, there weren't any paragraph breaks either. And, and this part of John's Gospel was all shared and taught to the disciples on the same night, the same night that Jesus washed their feet. In another sign of such overwhelming love, so I want to leave you this morning or if you're watching this uh, recording later, at any time of the day, I think this is just going to be as challenging to, to get your head around because it's been something that I've wrestled with um, from the moment that God laid it on my heart. If we who are to abide are loved by Jesus in the way that tells us that we are worth more than the world says that we're worth, that we are loved deeply and we are valued highly and we are a precious child of God. And if the commandment that follows our invitation to abide, to take up residence in this environment, to move in, to this culture and this reality. If what we are called to do as part of our household responsibility is to love one another in the same way that we are loved, then how will our attitudes and our behaviours be transformed by that realisation? How would it be different to the way that we're doing things now if we looked at another person and rather than putting them into a category, rather than rushing to make assumptions, we looked at them and said, they are worth more than the world tells them that they are worth. They are loved as deeply as I am loved by Jesus. They are valued and they also are a precious child of God. How different would that be for what we're doing now?
I don't know about you, but I was powerfully convicted as that thought was rattling through my brain. Because when we see someone from a different age group, a different gender, a different political affiliation, a different ethnicity, or any kind of difference at all, if we see them and begin with the view that Jesus sees them as being worth more than the world sees them as worth, loves them more than they've ever been loved in their life, values them more highly than they've ever been valued, and sees them as precious. If I start to see the other person in the way that Jesus sees me, then my response to them is very, very different. In a world that keeps telling all of us, but in this, this illustration, when the, when the world is telling the person that you are looking at that they aren't worth enough, the world's telling them that they're not lovable, the world is telling them that they're really not that valuable and they're really not unique or precious. What difference would it be to our families, to our workplaces, to the communities in which we connect, to the places where we um, have recreation and relaxation? Hey, what about our churches? Why stop there? What about the world? What difference would it make if people who abided in the vine, people who abide in Jesus, started to treat one another like this? What would it do if we really loved others in the way that Jesus loves us? Abide in me as I abide in you. Love one another as I have loved you. Will you respond to this invitation to abide, not just to hang around occasionally, but to really abide? And will we be a church that is made up of people who love like this. Let us pray. Loving God, as we reflect on the depth of your love for us, as we are overwhelmed by the way that you see us, even though we might not see ourselves as worthy, as we rest in the knowledge of your grace, that even when we make mistakes, you rush to forgive us, like the father rushed to the prodigal son, Help us not to hold on to that feeling selfishly just for ourselves. Help us not only to look at another person and say, oh yeah, they can fit in as well. But help us to love in the same way. And when we don't get it right, because we won't always get it right, convict us, challenge, transform and change us and prune those bits of our, of our lives that get in the way of reflecting 
the truth of the way that you love your creation, the way that you love me, but more importantly, the way that you love the person that I might not see as lovable. Help us to be a church that publicly wrestles with this challenge. Help us to be honest when we don't get it right. But help us to get better at loving one another. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.